Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Paul. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you're joining us for the first time, just first time in a really long time, whatever the case may be, we're just so glad to have you or have you back. And we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you make yourself at home here at the Vista. Before we jump in, I had a brief bit of news to celebrate with you. Uh, you'll probably remember that over the last few weeks, we've been raising money for Hunger Action Month and just wanted you to, uh, to let you know our goal was $18,000 and we came in at over $20,000 for Hunger Action Month. It's amazing. This figure's wrong because you kept giving. We couldn't get you to stop giving, so it's actually over $20,000 now. Um, I, I mention this every once in a while, but every single dollar that you give we give to Vista is money given to missions. All of it is. Now, that could be in the form of funding this building or building an orphanage on the other side of the world in Nepal, like we got to do last year. But it's all money given to missions. And so when we ask you to go over and above, and you do what you do every single time we ask, we just want to pause and let you know how grateful we are to be a part of a really, really generous church. And so that's going to provide meals for over 500 families over the holidays, which is really, really cool. All right, so today we are in the, uh, we'll call it the seventh inning stretch of our journey through the wild and very weird book of Revelation. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, at this part of the letter, we come to that place where a lot of people just get lost and they, they're never seen again. You know, because they lose the plot, it's easy to lose at this point. And so they either, either give up on Revelation altogether you know, there are a lot of U-turns to Psalms happen at this point in Revelation, you know what I mean? Just need a little bit of Psalms in your life if you're about halfway through Revelation. Or even worse, people keep reading and become one of those end-time conspiracy theorists who are convinced that every president they didn't vote for is the Antichrist. You get it. And so as we established last week, the key to understanding this portion of Revelation is walking into it with proper expectations, which in this case means understanding that what we're reading here in Revelation 6 through 20. This is not a mathematically meticulous timeline of the end of history. It's not a sneak peek into God's end of the world daily planner, but rather it's something that biblical scholars call recapitulation. Isn't that a fun word? You can say it with me. Recapitulation. Ah, this rolls off the tongue, and it basically means you've got the same basic story being told, but it's being told again and again in a number of slightly different ways. And so what's this basic story being told, recapitulated again and again in Revelation 6 through 20? Well, the story in a sentence would be something like this. All creation will face the wrath of the Lamb. All creation is going to face the wrath of the Lamb. So in Revelation 6, this is last week, the story was told in terms of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. In Revelation 8 and 9, we're going to skip over it today, but it's told in terms of these seven angels with seven trumpets who unleash hail and fire from the heavens and a swarm of demon locusts upon the earth. Incidentally, it makes for a really good children's bedtime story when the kids have been acting up. You just turn the old Jesus storybook Bible to Revelation 9. You don't want to brush your teeth, huh? Let's read about the locust plague. And so rather than trying to map out the end of history in a clean, historical sequence. What John is trying to do here is impress upon us the seriousness of God's commitment to put the evil and injustice of history to an end. John is trying to tell us that Jesus is going to get the last word on everything and everybody, every atom, every molecule, every person. Jesus is going to get the last word on. 
And so that's the basic story being told or recapitulated over and over again in Revelation 6 through 20. And so today we come to a particularly interesting version of that story involving a war in the heavens and a giant red dragon. You got your Bibles? We'll be in Revelation 12. We'll read most of Revelation 12. A little bit into 13 will be up here on the screen for you as well. It's going to be very weird. I must warn you, so go get some coffee if you need it. Starting in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain and about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them down to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be there nourished for 1,260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his Messiah, have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Pick it up in verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads and on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and they followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Last verse. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Right. Revelation 12 through thirteen seven. Now we have... Uh, periodically been highlighting the work of some local kind of in-house Vista artists to bring the text to life visually. We've got another piece that was created that was painted today by Karen Smith once again. This is of the scene in Revelation 12, the woman and the dragon. So well done. It's on display out in the commons if you would like to go look at it after the service. 
So in thinking about trying to explain what is happening in this fairly fantastical text today, I kept coming back to three questions that I think will frame up our time together pretty well. Here are the three questions. What in the world is happening? When is it happening? Number three, what, if anything, should we do about it? Let's start with this first question. What in the world is happening? And in order to answer this question, we're going to have to do a very brief history lesson. I promise it'll be very painless. Uh, More specifically, it'll be a brief history lesson on Satan. Maybe you didn't think we were going to get one of those today. Um, One of the things that you'll want to understand, if you want to better understand the Bible, is that the Bible is not a divine dictionary of theological facts that fell out of heaven in completed form one day. But rather, the Bible is what? Oh, it's this very diverse collection of stories and poems and histories and letters and memoirs that tell a big story about God and creation, wherein the truth about God and creation is being progressively unveiled as an unfolding drama. So, for example, if you want to know what the Bible has to say about Satan, you can't just, you know, turn to the yes section of your Bible. Oh, yes, here's Satan. Here's what I'm supposed to believe about him. It's not how the Bible works. It's not the way the Bible was written. But rather, you've got to do what? You have to follow the story of Satan as it unfolds within the biblical drama. And as it turns out, Satan has a very interesting story. Now, we get our first clear glimpse of him. Well, let's start with this. The English proper name Satan comes from the Hebrew word ha-satan, which just means the accuser. So generally, it refers to somebody who accuses people, but more specifically, it referred to someone who kind of functioned as an informant or a prosecuting attorney for a king. So in the ancient world, kings would have a ha-satan, an informant, a prosecuting attorney who was kind of his eyes and ears in the kingdom and who would roam around trying to find people who were disloyal to the king. And so it was thought that God must also have one of these, that God must have a ha-satan, a prosecuting attorney, an informant in his heavenly court. Now we get our first glimpse of him here. Do you remember where we first meet uh, Satan, ha-satan? It's in the book of Job. Job 1, verses 6 through 7 says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, God's heavenly court. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. What's Satan doing as he roams around on the earth? He's looking for people to accuse of unfaithfulness. What does Satan then do to Job? Accuses Job of being not as good a guy as God thinks Job is. We get our second clear glimpse of Satan in Zechariah 3, verse 1. This is later on in the Old Testament. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. There it is again. And so notice that at this point in Satan's history, he is not yet, you know, like God's ultimate opponent or anything like that, but rather he's this shadowy figure in God's heavenly court who likes to accuse other people. Now, there's clearly a joke to be made here about how lawyers are literally doing Satan's work, but given that Lauren, our executive pastor, and half of our elders are lawyers, I will not make that joke. (laughs) Now, this will all change, though, during what's known as the intertestamental period, okay, the time between the Old and New Testaments, because it's during this period that Satan kind of steps fully out of the shadows, and he emerges as the personification of evil and God's ultimate enemy. He's no longer just the shadowy figure. No, he is all that is wrong with the world, God's ultimate opponent and the leader of a cosmic 
rebellion against God. And this is the Satan that we encounter in the pages of the New Testament. And this brings us back to our question, what exactly is happening here in Revelation 12 through 13? Well, in a sense, it's pretty straightforward, even if it's symbolically outrageous. There's a woman. Who does she represent? Well, she represents Israel, clearly, but then also the church and all creation. It's all bound up in Israel's story. And she gives birth to this child who is right, the, the Messiah, Jesus. And then there's just this giant red dragon who is, is Satan. He tries to devour the child, but he can't because the baby's caught up to God and to his throne. So Satan tries to destroy Jesus, but he can't. And so then he wages this war in the heavens between his angels and God's angels, but he, he loses that too. And so he is cast down to the earth with his fallen angels. And so fallen here on earth, Satan and his angels then decide they will fight against God's children. And to that end, he enlists the help of this beast who comes up out of the sea, who's some kind of antichrist. And then this other beast who comes up out of the earth and is some kind of false prophet and together they form this kind of demonic trinity right satan antichrist false prophet who will wage a war against god creation and all the saints that's the story now when the series started i warned you that revelation is weird but it's weird on purpose for the purpose of challenging some of our assumptions about what's normal. You remember that? Now, I'll state the obvious. Many of us will find a story about Satan, the giant red dragon, waging a war in the heavens that then spills out onto the earth. Kind of weird. Does anyone find this weird? I find it weird because we neither think of nor experience life as some sort of spiritual battlefield. I mean, we're not worried about Satan and his fallen angels. Now, you know what we're worried about? That paunch on our belly, that rent that we're short on, that promotion we missed out on, that annoying neighbor with very bad taste and very loud music we want to bury in the backyard. That's what we worry about. And so, look, I get it. I do. I, um, I'm not naturally like a spiritual warfare kind of person. Do you know what I mean? I'm just not one of those people. Y'all, when my kids are acting up, I don't reach for the anointing oil. I reach for the belt, okay? <laughs> then my kids don't need prayer and fasting. They need a snack or a spanking. That's about as spiritual as I get. That's my spiritual warfare. That's the way my brain works anyways. And so if, if you're like me, then you might find some of the spiritual warfare stuff just kind of weird. Don't blame your bad behavior on the giant red dragon. You're just being a twerp, man. That is all it is. It is not the giant red dragon's fault. But here's the thing. Even though all this you know, spiritual warfare stuff it probably strikes a lot of us as being quite weird, it's also quite biblical. It is. Because I'm as modern as it gets. I am. But I have to admit that Scripture teaches us to see human life as this endeavor that is inflected and caught up in a cosmic spiritual rebellion at every moment of every day and so for everybody like me who finds all this stuff very very weird I think we have to entertain the possibility that actually we're weird we're the weird ones because we're able to live with this delusion because we have these privileged sanitized lives where we can pretend that life is not caught up in this cosmic spiritual rebellion we wake up a little bit and at this point, I know that all of, our, all of our spiritual warfare charismatics in the room, you know who you are. 
You're getting really, really excited right now. You're getting that anointing oil out, right? Y'all just thought this was hand sanitizer. I have been waiting to lay some hands on some people. And so you're thinking to yourself, it's about time, Austin. It's about time we talk about the devil, spiritual warfare. What took you so long? And you know what? I am going to offer a bit of a mea culpa here. I will. Because I do think I've been a bit overly reticent to talk about spiritual warfare stuff over the years. And it hasn't been intentional. It's just that, like I said, I'm not naturally a spiritual warfare kind of person. But be that as it may. And as much as it pains me to admit this, I have to entertain the possibility that God knows more about reality than I do. And so if God says that life is caught up in this cosmic spiritual rebellion, then I have to entertain the possibility that God might be right about that. And so I, like many of you, probably need to wake up a little bit and realize that there's often far more going on behind the curtain than we'd like to acknowledge. But be that as it may, this is not a but, it's an and, okay? It's an and. While the Bible does teach us this, and in no way qualifying my spiritual warfare mea culpa, we also need to be clear that while spiritual warfare is a very biblical thing to talk about, this does not mean that all talk about spiritual warfare is biblical. You follow me? All right, the Bible talks about spiritual warfare, but that doesn't mean that everything that everybody has to say about spiritual warfare is biblical. Now, more specifically, the tricky thing about spiritual warfare is learning how to take it seriously, but not too seriously. You got to take it seriously. You have to. But you also don't want to take it too seriously because that, too, would be unbiblical. One of the best examples of holding this tension between serious but not too serious spiritual warfare is found here in Revelation. Because notice, Revelation, y'all, it contains obscene amounts of spiritual warfare drama, doesn't it? Good Lord, you got these demonic battles and wars in the heavens and giant red dragons. It's, it's all there, man. It's all there. And yet what's often missed is that the spiritual warfare drama in Revelation is actually not very dramatic. Because at numerous points in the letter, John and Jesus go out of their way to remind us that, well, spoiler alert, Jesus wins. And not only does Jesus win, but technically speaking, Jesus has already won. In the crucifixion of resurrection, Jesus has already won. Uh, remember that the very first vision in Revelation ends with Jesus saying what? This is Revelation 1 verse 18. He says, Behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Y'all, I have this really vicious arm wrestling match with the devil coming up, and I sure hope I can get those keys from him. What does he say? He's like, Cling, cling. Already got him, guys. Nothing to freak out about. I've already got the keys to death in Hades. Later on in Revelation, verse 3, 2, 1, Jesus says, I also overcame and I sat down with my father on his throne. Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, I get this battle with the devil coming up and I could just really use your thoughts and prayers because it's going to be a tough one. Now what does he say? I'm already on the throne, baby. My feet are kicked up. I'm sitting with my father right now. I don't need your thoughts and prayers. This thing is a done deal. Revelation 12, we get this dramatic story about the giant red dragon. Is he going to swallow uh, the, the woman's baby? And then we get this hilariously undramatic resolution where we are told what? Uh, well, she gave birth to a son who is through all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was cut up to God and to his throne. She didn't get the baby, people. Later on, Revelation 16 and 17, this is my favorite. 
We get this great war between God and the, the demonic trinity. It's like the war to end all wars. And the drama is at this fever pitch. And then we once again get this hilariously undramatic resolution where we are told these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Of course, this is the way the story is going to end. This has all inspired me to write my next book. It's going to be called Gospel-Centered Spiritual Warfare because you have to put that in the title by Austin Fisher. Do you want to read it? Here's how it goes. Here's how it goes. <laughs> Satan fights Jesus. Jesus kicks his butt at the end. What do you think? It's pretty good? I, I, I know it's a little short, but it's longer than some of those Max Lucado and Rob Bell books y'all like, so I think it'll do just fine. And so to return to and briefly summarize and answer to our first question, what, what's happening here, Revelation 12, is John is reminding us that behind the curtain of human life as we think we know it, there is this cosmic spiritual battle going on between God and Satan that we should take seriously, but not hysterically. Because he already holds the keys. He doesn't need your thoughts and prayers. It's a done deal. And that brings us to our second question. When is this happening? We discussed in the second week of the series, trying to sort out the, the when of the events that Revelation describes is one of the trickiest things about the book. We noted at numerous points in the series that John clearly thought he was describing events that were mostly happening right then, in his lifetime. The very first verse of Revelation says what? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. John clearly thought these things were happening right then, in the first century. Just to take one rather infamous example from our text today. In Revelation 13, it's a little bit longer. We stopped right before it. We have this really infamous reference to, to the beast, to the mark of the beast, to the number of the beast. And the number of the beast is what? 666, 666. Well, in the ancient world, there was this practice called gematria. Gematria, in which letters were assigned a numerical value. So letters represented numbers. So let's say, for example, that your name was Bob. We'll get Bob's name up there. And let's just pretend that B's are worth two and O's are worth five. And you got a second B, so that's worth two. And so Bob's name would equal nine. Make sense? Makes sense. Well, if this is what John is talking about, then what he is saying when he says that this, you know, number of the beast is 666 is that the beast is the name of somebody whose name totals 666 according to this practice of gematria. And so was there an infamous somebody in the ancient world whose name totaled 666? Well, yeah. And everybody knew who it was. It wasn't a secret. It was Nero. Or as his name was spelled in Hebrew, Neron. Caesar, you can do the math here, 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50 plus 100 plus 6 plus 200 equals 666. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the name, Nero was the first Roman emperor to really, really persecute Christians. He was a person of legendary cruelty. He died in 68, but legend had it that he would return, that he had somehow come back to life. Hence that reference you heard in early Revelation too. He has a wound on his head that's miraculously been healed, and everybody's very impressed by it. So to return to our second question, right, when is this stuff happening, all this stuff in Revelation? Well, it's clear that John thought that this cosmic spiritual battle was happening in his time. Okay? The beast, the mark of the beast, it is Nero. Not the politician you hate right now, okay? It is Nero. It was Nero. And yet it's also clear that since history has not ended, 
but continue to continue. This spiritual conflict continues to continue in our time and will continue to continue until the end of time. And so to come back to this question, when's all this stuff happening? Well, I think the best answer that we can give to this question is that this stuff is always happening. This is what's always going on. And so rather than getting all worked up trying to predict when this stuff will one day happen, we should live seriously but not hysterically under the assumption that this stuff is always happening. This is what is always going on behind the curtain of human history, which brings us to our last question. What should we do about it? What should we do about it? Well, in about a month, there's going to be an election. I don't know if you've heard about this. So between now and then, there are going to be a lot of people trying to convince you that we are in the middle of a culture war, holy war, where the future of humanity is at stake. It's conservatives versus progressives, Republicans versus Democrats, whatever versus whatever. And one of the things that I am really hoping is that we will not fall for this kind of silly, antagonistic nonsense because John has already pulled the curtain back for us hadn't he so that we can see what's really going on back there and so we know as the apostle Paul told us in Ephesians 6 verse 12 that our struggle our battle it's not with flesh and blood right isn't that what Paul said it's not with people even your enemies rather our struggle our battle is with who with what spiritual forces of wickedness in the high places that's what Paul says or as Paul Manier says it, I love this quote. He says, to treat human enemies as ultimate enemies constitutes deception of the first order. Mm. And do you see how all this layers on top of each other? Right? Because earlier we noted that Satan's oldest and most potent weapon is what? Accusation. It's his original name. He's the accuser. In Revelation 12.10, he was called what? The accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. And look, trust me, I know this is easier said than done because I love accusing people. <laughs> it makes me so happy. It is one of my favorite things to do. I get it. I do. I get it. I love, it makes my heart just leap for joy when I get to accuse people. But man, when you get locked into that posture of accusation you get fixed in it where you're just constantly hurling accusations at others we need to get clear here you're not standing up for Jesus when you do that rather you know what you're doing right you are standing with Satan right because that's what Satan does that's his name Satan's what Satan's the accuser the one who loves to place blame on them always blame on them. Meanwhile, Jesus is what? He's the opposite of the accuser. Jesus is the confessor. Jesus is the advocate. Jesus is the one who freely takes the blame that everybody else deserves. Jesus is the one who freely takes responsibility for other people's sins. And I don't know what this looks like for you. But what I do know is that you need to know that this is what spiritual warfare looks like. That's not, you know, heads spinning around and yelling at priest. This is what spiritual warfare looks like, and this is why Satan is so good at it. Right? Because Satan doesn't want you to think that you're standing with Satan. You wouldn't do that. No, Satan wants you to think that you're standing up for Jesus. 
Satan doesn't want you to think that you're a bad guy. Satan wants you to know that you're a good guy. Because that's when you're most dangerous. And so paradoxically enough, the primary thing that we need to do to do our part in this cosmic spiritual battle is not to accuse those who we are convinced are wrong or evil or stupid or whatever, but rather it is to be so busy taking responsibility that you just don't have time to be constantly hurling accusations at others. And at some point in your life, man, you're just going to have to decide who you are. Are you somebody who takes responsibility are you somebody who makes accusations? Who are you? Who have you been called to be? We take responsibility for our sin, of course, and their sin. Why? How? Y'all, because Jesus has already freely and gladly taken responsibility for us, for all of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are here because of your grace and your good pleasure. We come before you this morning and, oh God, we, we confess all the ways in which we have been wrapped up in this cosmic spiritual rebellion and ways in which we are all the more so culpable and guilty because we knew we were standing up for you when we were accusing him of being this, her of being that. And, and God, I just pray that this morning you would have, again, pulled that curtain back. That's what Revelation is about, so that we could see what's really going on. And what's really going on is when we get locked into this posture of accusation, we are not standing up for Jesus. We are not standing with Jesus. We have aligned ourselves with Satan. Satan is the accuser. That is his first name, his primal name. And so, God, we pray that in these moments you would open our hearts up to see and instead of making accusations, you've invited us to take responsibility. Something we can do because you have freely and gladly taken responsibility for us, for every last one of us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.